How much do you know about pregnancy and alcohol? The reality may surprise you. Alcohol exposure while in the womb may cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in unborn children. It may lead to lifelong physical and or neurodevelopmental impairments such as problems with memory, attention, cause and effect reasoning, and difficulties in adapting to situations. For such an impactful disorder, it is rarely spoken about in the popular media. This podcast will take you behind the scenes to chat with the people who understand FASD. This is Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our little podcast. My name is Kurt Lewis, your friendly neighborhood podcaster, and today I'm talking to an unsung hero who has made immense contributions to the Australian FASD community. The founder and past chair of the board of No FASD Australia, Sue Myers. How's it going, Sue? Thank you, Kurt. What an introduction. I don't know that I can totally live up to that, but <laughs> thank you. And hello, and hello to all the listeners to this podcast. We're glad to have you today. I um, mean, so, someone who has such experience with dealing with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and also experiencing just in general, I'm hoping to tap into something for that. But before we do, do you listen to podcasts? I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. But I have to, of course, say I've listened to nearly all of yours and I wouldn't miss those as the surprising reality. I guess the other podcast I've listened to is generally when I'm in the car because I don't have a lot of time. And I really like uh, Richard Feidler and Sarah Konofsky in Mm. conversation. And they always have really interesting speakers. But generally that becomes fairly expensive because mm. they're usually authors who've written a book about something and I get so interested in the podcast I then have to go out and buy the book. Right, <laughs> getting into the nuts and bolts, how did you first become involved with FASD? Well, I became unknowingly involved in 1982 when we fostered our daughter. But at that stage, of course, I didn't know she had FASD. I knew that parenting her, straight away parenting her was different. I had three other children and parenting was really different with her. Things that usually worked with my other children weren't working with her. In particular, she didn't appear to learn from cause and effect. That was the thing that stood out to me most. She'd want to touch the hot stove every day. And I know it's fairly normal for a toddler to go up to the stove and you'd say, oh, no hot, and they'd look at you and they might touch it but they never, ever did it again. But she would go up day after day and do the same thing again. And I knew that there was something quite amiss there. Her milestones for most other things were were fairly good, but it was things like learning and impulsivity. And she was fairly daredevil. She, you know, even before she was two, she found a trellis up by the side of the shed and she managed to climb up it on top of the shed roof. And so those things were sort of a bit worrying, but it really wasn't until she was 10 And I read an article in a magazine about FASD and they could have been explaining all about her. And I thought, oh, wow, I know what it is now. I just need to go off and now get the help that she needs and everything's going to be happily ever after. We'll get the right help and support. We'll unlock that key so that the the key will unlock that lock and, and we'll know what to do from now on. And that really was the start of this very very long journey because it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. The medical profession that I visited didn't really seem to have much knowledge about FASD. I was already talking to people in Canada. That started talking to people in Canada because I did find support groups there. 
And so I expected our medical profession here to be up to date with where they, they were at the time, and they weren't. And so it was always a constant fight, 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 trying to get understanding. And thank goodness it's not like that now, but that was the beginning of my journey. I mean, it must have been difficult being the head of the medical profession itself. I mean, it must have been difficult to get the support you needed for the child you were taking care of. It was very difficult. As a parent, it's hard to get the medical profession to believe you. Yeah. And I think they see you as, oh, that's just a parent. We know everything there is to know. And that was, it's very disheartening, actually. And uh, every time I went to get her help, and even at school, I had to give the school all the information instead of the other way around. Everyone we went to see, I had to give them the information, yet they should have been the people giving me the information. Yeah. And it was always the other way around. And, you know, that improving now, but it's only been in the last few years that that's begun to improve. So it has taken a long time. But thankfully, there's a huge change now. There's still a long way to go for parents and carers because I think there's still a lot of people who don't know. Yeah. But it is it is definitely improved from those very early days. You have been accredited with founding NoFASD Australia. Why did you want to create a whole organisation to deal with FASD? And what was your main motivation? I guess our final diagnosis came from a paediatrician in Canada who diagnosed our daughter. And that wasn't until she was 18 or nearly 18. And I came back here to Australia and I thought, why did I have to go all the way to Canada? And why wasn't that information available here? I wrote a report and I distributed that really widely to anybody that I felt should should know about that. So to all of the major medical organisations, politicians, anyone tied up in health. I sent that, I think, to over 300 people Australia-wide and, and I didn't get the response I expected. I got a few responses and those responses told me what I needed to do next. And I thought, no, I don't need to do anything next, you do. Mm. <laughs> so that's why, you know, the organisation really was started because I felt we needed an organisation here that could start pushing for awareness I felt that I could provide some help to parents here that wasn't available, that they weren't getting where they needed. And I knew I wasn't the only person bringing up a child with these difficulties because I was tied up in the foster care system. I'd spoken to a lot of other foster parents. They were all, they all knew their child had come from a background where alcohol dependency was problematic. And so we all assumed that's what our children had, but it was really hard to get that diagnosis. So that's why I began the organisation back in 1998. Are you amazed at how much it's grown since you be- it began, really? Since it just began this small thing and now it's, it's grown to something much bigger? I'm really thankful it's grown to something much bigger. Mm. It should have grown much earlier, but I'm really thankful it has grown now. It went for many years with, with little recognition and no funding, and it really is only in the last probably seven, eight years that the funding's really started flowing through and of course especially the last few years and having you know other things like the first FASD inquiry and things like that have really moved things along but it was very very slow to start and even though we did have some organizations and professionals on board it was still very slow to get the wheels turning like they needed to turn. I know this is this is going to sound really cheesy and honestly I wouldn't be asking it if I could phrase it differently but I have to ask this because I really wanted your opinion on this. When you were chairperson of No Fasdy Australia, what did you think your greatest achievement was? 
There's no particular achievement that really stands out, I guess, other than just managing to keep organisation afloat without funding. <laughs> that was that was an achievement. But I think the major achievement was actually building a supporter base that included other organisations and individuals who were more powerful and more likely to get heard than I was. I don't call myself just a parent but I'm very aware that I have been considered just a parent by many people over the years. But no organisation is successful just by the chairperson of the board or yeah. even by who's running of the organisation at the time. I was the chairperson and everything, chief cook and bottle washer for many years. But you can't do that without other people becoming involved and being supportive. I guess the people who are most supportive to me, very first was a professor, Eric Hahn, at the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide. He very, very early on actually agreed to meet with me and he listened to me and it's the first time I felt as though I'd been listened to. Through him, um, he introduced me to Professor Carol Bauer at the Telethon Kids Institute. She took me seriously and she was involved with Professor Elizabeth Elliott who was the first diagnostic clinic in Australia, yeah. she took me seriously and Telethon Kids Institute and in particular the late Jan Payne did a heck of a lot of work and were very, very supportive. So without them, I don't think it would have moved on as quickly as it has eventually. But of course, there's been many other people over the 21 years that have been responsible in their own way to why NoFSD is, is what it is today. So I'm no longer involved, of course, at a board level, but I'm incredibly, incredibly proud of, of NoFASD today. Uh, the current NoFASD team, both the board and the staff, who've been really capably put together by the wonderful Louise Gray. <laughs> and she's really gathered together a great team, led them really brilliantly, and they're hardworking, committed and passionate and I, I always just say they warm the cobbles of my heart, <laughs> and 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 that's why we're where we're at mm. at this moment. Yeah, I'm just just a bit curious. Just taking it back to when you first started it, when you you, you keep mentioning it that it, there a lot of emphasis was put on you to do a lot of lot of things like yes. run up with the school, run up with the medical profession. Did you ever find that very exhausting? Absolutely, totally exhausting. But what kept me going was I was speaking to other parents and carers and we were all on the same wavelength and it was incredibly supportive to me, firstly, to know there are other people out there. But I know that from what they were saying, I was incredibly supportive to them too because I was the first person that they'd been able to talk to who was on the same wavelength they didn't have to explain themselves to. You know, that makes a huge difference. But, yeah, it was incredibly exhausting and I'd be told things, oh, well, you need to go and take that up with um, so-and-so who's the head of such-and-such. Or and I'm thinking, no, why do I have to do that? <laughs> you should be doing that. Mm. <laughs> you need to know about this just as much as I do. And that yeah, that was frustrating. But um, I think in a way knowing there are other parents and carers out there and having their support too, we all supported each other and that kept me going. Well, that kind of runs into my next question because I really wanted to ask this one. I ask most of my guests who come on this program this question so it's a big one yep yep is there more our listeners could be doing as individuals or we could be doing as a whole society to assist people with FASD or put it more correctly yep. parents and carers who care for people with FASD yep I think the more people who understand FASD that's everybody 
the better children and adults with FASD are going to be supported and understood. I don't think there's any Australian person who at some time in their lives is not going to come across a person who has FASD. I think that's inevitable. I think they're going to come across more than one person, actually, but that they may not be, be diagnosed and they won't know it. But they'll come across somebody that's got FASD. And so I think it would be great if every person listening to this podcast uh, would consider doing the new FASD online course. And that was just announced last week. It's now up on the FASD website. Foundations it's, of FASD, if I'm... Foundations if I'm... of FASD, yeah, mm-hmm. the Foundations of FASD course. It's suitable for anybody and it will give... And I think the more people who understand that, the better off people with FASD are going to get on in society, especially service providers and frontline workers in education, justice, health, mental health. I particularly encourage them to do the course because parents rely on those people to help them with their child with FASD and adults with FASD are never going to reach their full potential and have a positive outcome unless people in those agencies understand FASD as well. It's unique and it requires a unique understanding to help them be the best they can be. I think another really important thing everyone can do as a society is look at cultural change around the normalisation of alcohol use for everybody. I think there needs to be more understanding of the harmful effects of alcohol use to adult health, such as links with increased cancer risk, because if people can see those links, I think then it becomes much easier for them to understand how alcohol can be harmful to a developing fetus. If we accept that, well, yes, it harms adults who use FASD, then it's much easier to accept, yes, it's going to harm a fetus that's developing or an unborn baby. The other thing I think is adult role modelling is extremely important. I think it's important if we want cultural change, it's important for our children to see that adults can have fun and celebrate at times without alcohol. I'm not saying don't everybody give up alcohol. That's not, that's not going to happen. But I think role modelling that you can have fun without alcohol is really important for our children. And if we want them to perhaps have more understanding in the future, they have to understand that, that alcohol isn't as normal. It you shouldn't be as normal as it is now. At a personal level, I can't cope with seeing alcohol used at children's parties. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that's particularly helpful. I hate it being seen at school events. And I've, I know that one of my son's was actually horrified that they had a school event during the day and alcohol was being served to the adults. Mm. And I, I just think that sort of role modelling's giving the, totally the wrong message to our children. Did you see that Sean McAuliffe documentary on the ABC? Yes. It was yes. So, and they interviewed the kids and they were surprised how much they picked up on the alcohol use? Exactly. And, and is, I think mm. adults in our society have to take responsibility for that. Yeah. And until we start looking at those things through different eyes, I don't see our alcohol culture changing and I don't see the change we're going to have around alcohol use in pregnancy happening as much either. So I think to have prevention at its best, I think there has to be denormalisation. I don't know if that's a word of alcohol use. <laughs> that's probably not a word. I, well, I mean, you could have just invented a new word there, Sue. I mean, yes. <laughs> denormalisation, people. The denormalisation. Not normalising something or, you know, unnormalising. I mean, it's on every TV show. Mm. Uh, I think we need to see, like, we realise that we had to, to remove cigarette smoking on TV shows. Now, it's yeah. still there, but it's not there with very many people. It's mm. not there with very many of the characters. Yeah. Most of the characters don't smoke, and I think we need to see a little bit more of that around alcohol 
but I think that's probably a long way down the track. <laughs> well, hopefully attitudes are changing. I'm I'm hoping yeah. attitudes are changing for the better, particularly yeah. for my kids and my kids' kids. Yeah, exactly. And and I well, I I believe it will. It's just going. I think it will take time, though. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Um, I've learned a lot today, and I'm sure my listeners have too. You're amazing, Sue. Oh, I, I don't think I'm amazing. <laughs> well, that's the I, thing about amazing people, people. Lots of people do what I do, <laughs> and it's lots of other people behind me. I couldn't do it without, you know, a big, great team behind me the whole way through the last, you know, 21 years. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Please tune in next week for another episode of Our Little Podcast. If you like this podcast episode, then please show your support by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. This project is funded by the National Disability Insurance Scheme, NDIS, in collaboration with NoFASD Australia. All rights reserved. For more information about FASD, then please go to www.nofasd.org.au.